I'm Dan Kurtzphalen, and this is the Foreign Affairs Interview. I think there was a moment, maybe the unipolar moment, when when one could hope that more rational decision-making was possible globally, but now no longer. That's Shiv Shankar Menon, India's former national security advisor. From where he sits, the U.S.-dominated international order is a thing of the past. And, in his view, when you look at the global reaction to the war in Ukraine, not just the Western reaction, you see just how broken that order is. Menon calls its response to recent challenges pathetic. Whether it's climate change or conflict or the global debt crisis, the system is just not working, especially for the global South. A kind of anarchy is creeping into international relations, Menon wrote recently for Foreign Affairs, and what order emerges from this chaos is anybody's guess. Shankar, many thanks for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. So you wrote a piece early in the war that cut against a lot of the commentary that was coming out of Washington and European capitals. You wrote in that piece that the war is no doubt a seismic event that will have profound consequences for Russia, its immediate neighbors, and the rest of Europe, but it will neither reshape the global order nor presage an ideological showdown of democracies against China and Russia. Far from consolidating the free world, the war has underscored its fundamental coherence. Explain why you think the West is exaggerating the war's global importance in overstating the stakes of this struggle, whether strategic or systemic or moral or, or otherwise. I think the reason I, I think so is partly because if you look around the world, most countries, frankly, are affected by the war, by the economic consequences of the war especially. But don't see this as being their fight. It's true that NATO, West Europe, the US are deeply invested in this. And it's true that many people in the US has framed it as autocracy versus democracy. But there are democracies outside that geography which actually find the war, in fact, wish the war would go away, but don't see the war as affecting their fundamental security or political concerns, which for the rest of the world is still development. And in Asia, at least, the primary contradiction is today between the US and China. But what I would like to say is that the Ukraine war does represent something that we've seen happening for many years. Politics is now in command of, of economics. And, you know, we got used in the globalization sort of decades in those before the global financial crisis. We, we got used to the idea that decisions were made primarily on economic grounds. That's no longer the case. Today, whether it's energy, whether it's food, whether it's development, whether it's this huge debt crisis that developing countries have, I mean, the IMF estimates that over 50 countries are at the risk of grave debt default. All this is being dealt with politically rather than on sure economic grounds. And that's what's happening to when you see decoupling, when you see what's happening to global supply chains. For me, therefore, politics is back in command. Now, for many of us in the rest of the world, politics never went away. But I think there was a moment, maybe the unipolar moment, when, when one could hope that more rational decision-making was possible globally. But now, no longer. I think we're back to emotion, to to geopolitics, to 
contention, great power rivalry, and so on. I mean, all the things that make life unpredictable and sometimes nasty. There, there's a lot to follow up there, but to stick with Ukraine and how the world beyond the U.S. and Europe has been uh, reacting to the war for a second. Let me press you on, I guess, a few of the specifics that if I were, you know, say a Ukrainian diplomat, I would try to try to be um, making the case on if I were talking to, you know, an Indian diplomat or another representative of the global south. I think people talk about the norm of sovereignty and intervention. You know, this does represent the most kind of flagrant violation of, of those norms by a great power in some time. Uh, people talk about the kind of question of credibility vis-a-vis China, you know, that if Russia is allowed to take over much or all of Ukraine, that it will send a signal to China. Um, and then on the question of the kind of economic effects of the war, certainly, you know, Ukrainians have said, well, if Russia would, you know, simply stop its aggression, that would end the, the economic dislocation. So why, you know, why should you not, if you're, you know, someone suffering from those effects, simply add additional pressure to Russia? How, I mean, how do you, those are three distinct points I realize, but how how do, how do those strike you from where you sit? Well, to go backwards, if the war stopped, frankly, uh, the main economic dislocations would not be solved. Whether it's the debt crisis of developing countries, whether it's the food price issue, whether it's the dislocation in energy markets, this predates the Ukraine war. Ukraine war made them much worse. So it's not going to stop because the Ukraine war stopped. Secondly, the norms issue is is critical. There's no question. But, you know, we've got used, at least in the global south, we have an experience of colonialism, of the Cold War, when the norms seem to apply to everybody except the powerful. And even after the end of the Cold War, I mean, we've see, seen instances of, of countries invaded. So whether the Ukraine wins or Russia wins or whether this goes on as a brutal stalemate, I'm afraid the world is what it is. It's, it's, it's anarchic in the sense that there's, there's no one person running it. There's, there's no recourse to actually get the enforcement of international law. The norms are important, but Ukraine is not going to determine whether the world is peaceful or not, or whether those norms are going to be respected. Norms will be respected when the powerful start respecting and obeying those norms. And they seem to do that only when it suits them for balance of power reasons. So I'm not sure that this should, that the Ukraine war at least should be posed as, as an issue of, oh, here are great international norms at stake. Because I think there's honestly between you and me, I think nobody can cast stones in this glass house. I think that's the situation we're really in. How would you characterize the the current uh, position of the Indian government on Ukraine? And to your mind, is the government handling it reasonably well? Are there things that you would change about the response or the policy? Well, I've said from the beginning that, you know, maybe they should have been more forthright in calling it an invasion. What Russia did on the 24th of February last year, calling that an invasion. But their disquiet, I think they've made quite clear. They've also, you know, supported Ukrainian sovereignty, territorial integrity. But until the parties themselves are ready for something more, I don't see that India can could do, India or any other third party can do very much to, to resolve the issue or to bring it to some kind of conclusion. 
So as you note, part of what is at play here are kind of differing interpretations of what world order has been, you know, what the, the order of the past few decades has actually entailed, you know, in the, the U.S., especially we talk about a rules-based order or the liberal national order. You argued in a, a more recent piece that all the great powers these days are revisionist, that, that no one really likes the current world order. So, you know, before turning to this question of how international order is is falling apart and where it where it might go let's talk about what it was you know how how you would characterize the order that existed in the post cold war and how you think the right interpretation differs from the kind of standard foreign policy establishment view in the united states or europe i mean the initial post world war 2 order was a keynesian order with the bretton woods organizations and so on and it it was in a sense not very intrusive as long as you bought into certain international norms and uh, worked within certain rules in the international economy, you were relatively free to manage your own internal affairs. India was the largest beneficiary of World Bank loans, for instance, while it was building a socialistic, not a socialist, but a, a mixed economy where the state played a role, but the private sector also. In fact, the private sector was always much bigger than, but that didn't prevent. India being a big part of that, of the original GATT, UNCTAD order. But that changed, I think, after the end of the Cold War, when there were no longer two contending blocks at the, during the unipolar moment, where you had a much uh, neoliberal approach to order, which was much more interventionist, the right to protect, uh, also which were the boundaries in a globalizing world between internal and external economic issues were much less clear, where investment decisions, for instance, could then be adjudicated internationally rather than purely nationally. Now, the problem with that is that newly created states, I mean, and but for that's true of most of the world, for them, their sovereignties are very important, and 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 you got pushback against it. So that increasingly, while the issues have been transnational, the biggest issues that face us today, like climate change, like as I said, the debt crisis of developing countries, development itself as an issue, the pandemic, for instance. While these are global issues, instead, we've seen sovereignties harden in reaction to that neoliberal, open, globalizing world. And you've seen this happen politically in terms of the rise of new authoritarians. You've seen it happen economically in terms of decoupling, basically. And if you look at it on the internet, for instance, there are basically two internets in the world today, at least. And there are other countries trying to wall themselves off as well. So today we are between orders and nobody's quite sure where we're going. So what you're seeing instead is, I mean, the Ukraine war, for instance, is an instance of a struggle over the European order, the attempt to create a European order. Clearly, the Russian idea of what it should be is quite different from NATO's or the US idea of what it should be. But it is a quarrel about a, U a European order. Asian order I mean, is, is up for grabs because of the rise of China, the reactions from other countries, but the rise of other countries as well. And because the balance of power is, is shifting so rapidly, and it's shifting not only because countries have changed, but also because of technology, for me, this is a time of flux. And the fact is that 
it doesn't matter who they are, whether it's the US or whether it's Russia and China, it's clear that they don't like the existing order, they're trying to remake it. But even the US talks about building back better, is harking back to an earlier order, to something different from what we have today. It's not as if the old institutions are working. You look at the pandemic, you had a form of vaccine nationalism across the world, across the board, and your response to the coronavirus was actually worse than the response to HIV AIDS. When you at least managed an international response and got the treatments to the patients in countries that couldn't afford it. But that's not what we did with the pandemic at all. So which worries me, which shows to me that the order is actually disintegrating in a sense that its effectiveness and the old institutions, the WHO, which should have taken care of the pandemic, for instance, is no longer as effective as it was before. And the primary cause is the politics and the great power rivalry that now exists in the world. And I'm not sure that that is being resolved very quickly, since I don't see that. And that's that's what worries me. Let's let's look at the the U.S. side of that to start. You know, I think if if you're an American policymaker, you spend a lot of time talking about steps that you're taking to uphold the order, uphold the rules. You write in the the uh, trenchant and provocative piece that you did for for foreign affairs over this over last summer. That I'm quoting you here: major powers exhibit what may be called revisionist behavior, pursuing their own ends to the detriment of the international order and seeking to change the order itself. And you notably include the United States in there. So for American audience, especially, how do you see revisionism in American foreign policy? What are the elements of, of what Washington has been doing that represent an effort to kind of overturn or change the order? Well, I think there's three parts to it. One is, of course, clearly on the economic side, the U.S. is more protectionist, much less globalist than it was before. But the other is, and I think the, the positive part is, on the political side, the U.S. is today working much more closely and is, is probably more dependent almost on, on working with partners and allies than before. And that's a good thing, actually, because <laughs> the logic at least leads you to a more international approach to two things. The third is, just from the outside, and I don't know this as well as you would, it seems to me that foreign policy has become more partisan, except for one issue, China. But on every other issue, it seems to have become more partisan in the US. Now, that again, doesn't worry me too much, because, you know, I'm an old man, I've seen, I've heard the US and US domestic politics blamed for US decline several times in the past. I mean, in the 60s, when I first came to the US, I was told, no, no, they can't sort themselves out. 75 after Vietnam, you know, ah, their politics so divided, 80s. I mean, it's, I've heard it before. And it's the US is the one power, great power, which has always managed to reinvent itself and does so very quickly because it's, it, there's a self consciousness, which I think I find quite remarkable. It's very unusual, actually. Most great powers. I think all great powers in history, the greater the power, the more the level of, of autism, as it were. But the, not with the U.S. And the U.S. has been so self-critical. And in a sense, it's designed with checks and balances to do so. But all this makes the U.S. slightly in today's situation. It does mean that the U.S. is is revising the way it sees the world and what it expects from the rest of the world. 
you know, unfortunately, revisionist has acquired a sort of pejorative sense. It shouldn't have it, actually. We should be changing. We should be improving. We should be trying to get better. And if you look at it in that sense, I don't see why we should worry about being called revisionist. If we assume that the United States still does have that capacity for for reinvention or for for self renewal, however we characterize it, what if you know if uh, Joe Biden were asking you for advice on what what that should entail right now? What would you what would you advise? Well, I would say that what the world needs is a much clearer definition of where we should be going, a non ideological definition. You know, to present it as purely democracy versus autocracy. That's only a form of government, but what do we want? I mean, did the democracies respond better to the pandemic? Have they responded better to issues of development, to the developing country debt crisis? Have they responded better to climate change? So, for me, that's not the metric that we should be using. But on these big issues, if we are clear where we want to go, I think the world would be. The world actually needs leadership today, and that's what's actually in short supply. And for that, I think there has to be a much clearer vision. None of the new authoritarians has that, or has offered a vision which could attract the world. If you think of the Cold War and why the Cold War was won, of course, everybody will give you their own reasons. For me, one of the big reasons was because of the attraction of the vision of freedom. It was the free world. It wasn't the democratic world. It was the free world and freedom. And the U.S. had helped in decolonization, had a record of standing for freedom in various places, and I think that made a big difference. So, I mean, that's that's the advice I would give, but but I'm sure they'll never ask. I, I think most Americans hear free world and to, to, you know, to them, that's synonymous with democratic world. What is the distinction there? Is freedom is actually allowing people a chance to achieve their full potential. That's freedom. So I agree with you. Democracy is the best way, but that's only one part of the problem. You, you mentioned the, the bipartisan consensus, more or less, on China in Washington these days. You have been a uh, you've represented India and China on various occasions. You've been ambassador to China. You've been one of the most astute observers, uh, not just in India, but but around the world of, of China and China's relations with the rest of the world over the past several decades. Do you share the the emerging U.S. consensus on what China is trying to do, what 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 China is um, doing both in Asia, but also globally in terms of its own ambitions? Ultimately, I don't think China's either a mystery or working to some grand plan, which is, you know, perfectly thought out long term. I think they they respond to to stimuli just like the rest of us and that their goals are also perfectly understandable. It's the same security, prosperity. Uh, The China dream doesn't actually, when you actually break it down, it's not so different from making America great again, you know, if if you think of it. But they're in a situation which is very different from previous dominant powers. Unlike the US, they're not they don't have two oceans, two of the world's largest oceans and two harmless neighbors. They don't have the choice of whether they they're in a crowded neighborhood with other major powers on their periphery. 
So they have to engage whether they like it or not. And for the first time in history, I think their, their future is, their primary security concerns are now maritime because that's where their trade, they're now tied into the world economy. So they've never before been in a position like now where they're powerful but dependent on the world. And that's a tough sort of thing to, to manage and to learn how to manage, to become a maritime power is very different from what they're used to in history. So it's going to be interesting to see how they actually work it out. And that's one reason why I think you see these swings and you see foreign opinion of China swinging from, oh, no, the, the peaceful, friendly, oh, no, the assertive, the aggressive. I think both sides are learning how to deal with each other still, and it's going to take a little while. We'll be back after a short break. After decades of global economic integration, the world is now facing the risk of geoeconomic fragmentation, or GEF. The IMF identifies channels of benefits to globalization and the falling costs of GEF. This would affect areas of trade, migration, capital flows, technology, and global public goods. Researchers suggest a pragmatic path forward for preserving the benefits of multilateralism. Access the latest research on the potential ramifications of a policy-driven reversal of global integration by visiting imf.org publications. That's imf.org publications. The history of the relationship between the India and China is long and complicated, as you know better than anyone. In the last few years, it does seem like China has become somewhat more um, aggressive or provocative when it comes to the disputed border, when it comes to you know various other reactions to Indian policies. Do, do you see a long-term shift in, in that relationship to a much more contentious and, and, and hostile one? Or do you, do you imagine that kind of shifting back and forth in the way you just described? The balance of power between India and China has probably shifted over the last 20, 20 uh, 25 years or so. And some of the change in Chinese behavior is opportunistic, is, is assuming that. But I think that's something that will shift again and has shifted before. And so I do think that the relationship will go through these phases of of attempting to or successfully managing it, as we did for almost 30 years, and of periods of tension and much harder periods right, like right now. We have a long history of misunderstanding each other. We've done it fairly consistently because this is really the first time that India and China actually are it's only since independence and the founding of the People's Republic of China that we're seriously part of each other's security calculus and that, that our politics and our, that it really matters to each other. So, as I said, in, in historical terms, we're still learning. But in practical terms, day-to-day -day terms, yes, today it's a very tense relationship, especially because I think deterrence has broken down on the border since 2020. And there's no going back after what happened in 2020. So there will have to be a new strategic framework, which is worked out by both sides. 2020, uh, just to remind remind everyone, was the there was at least one major clash where there were uh, major fatalities for the first time in, in years. Is that right? Yeah, that's true. And uh, since then, troops have been built up on the border. We have over 100,000 troops on the in the Western sector. And they're spending the third 
miserable winter up there in really inhospitable terrain at very high altitudes. So until we can wind down that situation, we had another confrontation in the eastern sector in December last month. So this is not a happy situation politically. But if you look at the relationship as a whole, China's still India's major largest trading partner and trade has been growing. So to some extent, we have the same dilemma that the US has, where there's a clear economic interest in the relationship, large economic stakes in the relationship, but a difficult political relationship. And, and reconciling those two and dealing and managing that is not going to be easy for us. China has become, I think, the kind of central driver of the US-India relationship over the last 10 years, probably. What is what is your sense of the state of the US-India relationship now? And is is China an adequate basis for that? Do you see that as the kind of right, right foundation for it? But from an Indian point of view, I don't think China is the basis of the relationship. For me, the US is an essential partner from an Indian point of view, not because of China, Quite frankly, China on the border is something we have to manage ourselves. I mean, our territorial integrity is our, our issue. It's, it's something we will manage. No, for me, the U.S. is, is a, an essential partner because if we want to transform India, then I don't see us doing it without U.S. help or without the U.S., whether it's in terms of our economy, whether it's in terms of technology, whether it's in terms of working in the world, where the U.S. is the sole superpower today. Uh, she's the only global power. She's the only power who can project power across the globe where she wants, when she wants. The U.S. is essential for much more than China. And China is, I think, from the U.S. point of view, China, the salience of China in the India-U.S. relationship has grown tremendously. And there's no question we have congruence in many of our views on China, on what China has been trying to do, on how we should deal with it. And we work together with the U.S. in, in the defense, security, intelligence, other sensitive fields, in much, much more closely than we ever have in the past. And than we ever have with anyone else. I mean, that's That's also... True, which I think is is under-recognized. But for me, that's not only because of China. China may be contributing some of the glue, but uh, only some of it. For me, there's much larger reasons. And it's the larger India-US congruence in the way we look at Asia, Maritime Asia in particular, and in the way we look at issues. So for me, that's a relationship which will logically grow. And from an Indian point of view, that, that should be most welcome. Do you think Washington is approaching that task in the right way? I think we've been fortunate that, A, it's been bipartisan throughout in, in Washington. Secondly, I think we've, I mean, the level of professionalism that's been brought to bear on the relationship, I think, is quite remarkable consistently over administrations. The big advantage we have, I think, is actually the diaspora and what it has meant for links across society, across the economy. It's no longer just, you know, the formal relationship between the governments. I think it's much broader than that. 
My favorite example is, you know, when they sell real estate in the suburbs of Delhi and name developments, Palm Springs or Nassau County, it tells you something about what aspirational Indians are looking for. You know, I'm sure you used to give speeches about celebrating the common democratic values and common values more generally between the United States and India. You know, I certainly used to uh, have to write those speeches on the U.S. side, uh, kind of celebrating the um, relationship between the the world's oldest and the world's largest democracy is the, mm-hmm. the the cliche I always went. There are have, of course, been concerns about American democracy at various points over the last few years, uh, as well as uh, certainly concerns on the U.S. side about some of the domestic developments in India, whether, you know, treatment of minorities or some of the other policies under the current government. Do you see that, the kind of um, uh, growing concerns about democracy in India as a threat to the relationship or something that the U.S. should make part of a concern that it should bring into that into the relationship in a way that could hinder some of the growing strategic convergence? Well, it's another thing we have in common, isn't it? We both worry about the nature of democracy in the other country and at home. But, you know, democracy is never a finished work. And it's something that keeps evolving, whether it's democracy in the U.S., whether it's our democracy. If you look at the number of times we've both amended our constitutions and the creative ways in which we've interpreted our constitutions. For me, this is part of democracy, that we learn, that we change, that we improve the the system we have. And that in the Indian case, if you look at the history since independence, It's been a case of ever larger numbers of people actually having a say in in what happens. Now, whether you like what they say or don't like it, that's that's beside the point. But the fact is more and more people have been politically empowered and socially and economically over time. And the numbers in India, it's, it's clear. The constitution was written by an assembly which was elected with a property qualification, only those who paid income tax. We did universal suffrage in 1950 and with our first, with the constitution and from the first election onwards. But it takes time for people to start learning how to use that that power. And over time, you've seen increasingly both the social base and the degree of involvement of people across the board has increased tremendously. And I think that's what we're seeing today. And there will always be people saying, oh, but you know, the good old days, things were much simpler. Complex societies, both India and the US. And if we are truly democratic, we should understand that each of us has our domestic politics. We will have to cope with it, but we will have to sort out our domestic politics ourselves. And so, yes, I think, you know, as Democrats, we should also be willing to listen to other people's opinions, to what they say, about our democracy, about what they think about it. But ultimately, you know, it's our own business to fix it. And I think we will. Let me close by bringing up a, a forthcoming piece that you have in Foreign Affairs, where you talk about the the global South and the reaction to Ukraine, but also this broader question of what it would mean to really rethink world order, taking some of those concerns and dynamics into account. You write that it, we're not going to contend with a non-aligned world, we're going to contend with an unaligned world. And mm-hmm. in, this, in this unaligned world, there's a kind of growing resentment about what you call the self-absorption of both the West and China and of Russia, um, none of whom have addressed the issues of debt, climate change, and the pandemic. What is this resentment leading to and what would it take to um, build an order that 
to your mind, adequately address these kinds of dynamics? For me, I think what what I would prefer is an order where, at least on certain big issues like climate, like pandemics, like development, where you were able to at least come to some kind of understanding, some basic consensus. And I think this is something that we need to start building from the bottom up, where we need to start Whereas if we see it only in terms of individual sovereign nations with their interests, trying to negotiate the traditional way, I don't see this working. I I don't see a new order emerging very easily. Unfortunately, most states today are looking for a state-centered order which empowers their own state in every which way. And that I think is really a recipe for, well, trouble at the very least, because it means that you'll be repeating history. And it sounds to me like you'll be repeating late 19th century European history, which did not end well for anyone, including Europe. I mean, it destroyed Europe as well. So I would look for something slightly broader, something that actually brought in much more I've been talking in this situation between orders of working with issue-based coalitions of those who are willing and able to do something, who have an interest in in an issue. So if you're looking at pandemics, it would be one set of actors who could really make a difference. If you're looking at climate change, it's another set of actors who can make a difference. But to say that all sovereign states are equal and everybody should be at the table and all 200 states in the world need to have a say in this, it's ideal, yes. But we've seen that it it hasn't worked in the last decade or so. And so I think you'd need a slightly different approach. Uh, I know this sounds very vague and very utopian. But I, for me, the, those kinds of, well, minilaterals, as it were, or plurilateral approaches can actually help us to address some of the bigger issues. But we need to concentrate on the big issues rather than ending up as we have in Ukraine in the kind of situation that we have there, where you now have interests on both sides which seem irreconcilable, quite frankly, and neither war nor sanctions is really helping to get us to a solution. That is an appropriate note to end on, a mix of um, grim pessimism with a, a, a degree of optimism in there. Shivshankar Menon, thank you for the series of wonderful pieces you've done for foreign affairs. We will look forward to more in the, the months and years ahead. And thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you for that. Thanks a lot. Thank you for listening. You can find the articles that we discussed on today's show at foreignaffairs.com. The Foreign Affairs Interview is produced by Kate Brannon, Julia Fleming-Dresser, and Molly McEnany. Special thanks also to Grace Finlayson, Caitlin Joseph, Nora Revenaugh, Asher Ross, Gabrielle Sierra, and Marcus Zacharia. Our theme music was written and performed by Robin Hilton. Make sure you subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you like what you heard, please take a minute to rate and review it. We release a new show every other Thursday. Thanks again for tuning in. 